We'll be in two different psalms, beginning in Psalm 59 and then jumping back to Psalm 54. Going to be spending the next several weeks, either morning or evening service in the psalms, considering those particular psalms which David wrote during the time of 1 Samuel. The book of Psalms is a Jewish hymnal. Songs written by various men in Jewish history to extol the character and the works of God. David himself wrote 73 out of the 150 Psalms we have in the book of Psalms. And 14 of those Psalms, as far as we can tell, at least 14 directly reference the occasion for which it was written or the event that directly inspired the psalm itself. There may be others. There's some debates about some others where it's not explicitly stated, but there's enough information to assume that we know, you know where David was when he was writing it and whatnot. But there are 14 that are at least explicit in stating this is the time either that David wrote the psalm or as he thinks back upon that time, he wrote a psalm. Of those 14 psalms, seven of them reference events that took place within the scope of 1 Samuel's narratives. Now, several months ago, we considered um, one of these psalms, and we spent some time there. But I decided after that psalm that I didn't want to continue to, to do the psalms interspersed with their actual events because I felt like it was really slowing down some of the momentum of the narrative. So I decided just to take all the psalms and pack them at the end here and we'll see how it goes and if it doesn't go well then I'll intersperse them now through through 2 Samuel in the evening. But uh, you all can be my guinea pigs a little bit with that one. But today we're going to look at two different psalms. Two separate psalms that have a very similar message. Two different events described in 1 Samuel dealing with the same overarching topic, at least in part. And that topic is namely how David reacted toward those who sought to deliver him into the hand of King Saul. So in both of these psalms, there's going to be a person or a group of people who seek to deliver David into the hand of Saul. And David is reacting to those people who sought to deliver him. Now the first psalm I'm going to read, I ask you to turn there, is Psalm 59. It's actually the later psalm, of course, as we'll jump back to 54. However, it is also uh, the psalm that references the earlier event in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, Psalm 59 was written in consideration of the time when Saul sent his men to go to David's house and to lie in wait for him to kill him. This event was found in 1 Samuel 19, if you recall. This is soon after David was given uh, Michael to marry. And David is married to Michael and the men surround the house, remember. And as the men surround the house, Michael finds out about this plot and she tells David, you need to go, you need to run. So he goes out of uh, the back of the house and he flees and she takes the pillows and she puts them under the covers, remember. And when the men finally kind of knock on the door and say, hey, we're looking for David, where is he? She says, oh, I'm sorry, he's sick. And Saul's henchmen say, oh, okay, he's sick, we can't kill him then. And they go back to Saul and say, sorry, he's sick. Saul says, I don't care if he's sick, go get him. Bring him here. He's going to die anyway, so why why does it matter if he's sick? And, And that's the event that undergirds Psalm 59. Let's read it together. To the chief musician, Altaskith, 
Mictum of David, when Saul sent and they watched the house to kill him. Deliver me from mine enemies, O my God. Deliver me from them that rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloody men. For lo, they lie in wait for my soul. The mighty are gathered against me, not for my transgressions, not for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves without my fault. Awake to help me and behold. Thou therefore, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to visit all the heathen. Be not merciful to any wicked transgressors. Selah. They return at even. They make a noise like a dog. They go round about the city. Behold, they belch out with their mouth. Swords are in their lips. For who say they doth hear? But thou, O Lord, shalt laugh at them. Thou shalt have all the heathen in derision. Because of his strength will I wait upon thee. For God is my defense. The God of my mercy shall prevent me. God shall let me see my desire upon mine enemies. Slay them not, lest my people forget. Scatter them by thy power and bring them down. O Lord, our shield for the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips. Let them even be taken in their pride. And for cursing and lying which they speak. Consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may not be. And let them know that God ruleth in Jacob unto the ends of the earth. Selah. And at evening let them return, and let them make a noise like a dog, and go round about the city. Let them wander up and down for meat, and uh, grudge if they be not satisfied. But I will sing of thy power, yea, I will sing aloud of thy mercy in the morning, for thou hast been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. Unto thee, O my strength, will I sing. For God is my defense and the God of my mercy. So we have Psalm 59 here. And David begins this psalm by saying, and when, when you look in, in the, the text, if you have a text, when you read, I guess, as, as I would put it this way, if you have a physical text, oftentimes the, to the chief musician, all of that initial stuff will be put into the text. That's actually inspired scripture. That was in the originals. Now, if you have a text that's italicized, that's trying to explain the psalm a little bit to you, that's, that's commentary. That's something that's put in there by the editor. But if it's in the same font, if it's the same size, if, it, um, uh, if in your Bibles, if you see that, then you know that it's actually a part of the inspired text. And so David is writing this and he gives it to the chief musician and he says Altaskith. Now Altaskith, uh, several psalms are introduced with this word Altaskith, which means destroy not. And there's no real, it doesn't necessarily always follow that, that the theme of the psalm is uh, not, de- not destroying. As a matter of fact, in this psalm we see David say destroy. So we presume, and, and it may be, it may not be, it may have something to do with the theme, but more more. Possibly, Altaskith, the destroy not, was actually a tune. And David saying that this psalm was written to be sung to this particular tune, the tune called Altaskith. In the same way that, that we might open our hymnals, and if the meter is the same, I could open to certain songs and say, we're going to sing these words, but to the tune of whatever, how great thou art, or whatever it might be. And if, if everything's in the same meter, then we can take the words from one song and put it into the melody of another song and it'll fit. 
So that's kind of what, what people believe is going on here with that designation of Altaskith. The other thing that's mentioned here is that this is a mictum of David, a mictum of David. And, and this means that it was one of David's golden psalms. Mictum means a, a, a golden or a golden psalm. Psalms that were particularly sacred uh, in worship and praise unto the Lord. And there are only seven mictums in the psalms that were written by David. And so this is one of those seven. The psalm is broken into no less than three major parts. And we see those parts uh, divided by the, the, the phrase or by the word, Selah. So in Psalm 59, 1 and 2, David prays, and then in 3 and 4, he complains about his woes, and then in verse 5, he prays again, and then it ends with a Selah. And then he goes into the second section where he renews his complaint, he declares his confidence in God, and then he, he prays again, and then we see a, a second Selah. And then the final section uh, in verses 14 to 17, David prays, and then he sings. So we see this general division. I'm not actually uh, digging yet deep, deeper into what, what we see as far as the content is concerned because we're preaching both of these psalms together. So bear with me as we kind of overview each of these psalms and then we, we try to bring it together. David is expressing in this psalm a frustration. The frustration of seeking to serve God but being thwarted at every turn by the wicked. That he's trying to do what's right and yet Saul has these wicked men that are lying in wait for him, right? And, and they're they're trying to chase him down when he has done nothing wrong. And yet David encourages himself in the Lord here. He falls upon God for understanding and for mercy and for deliverance. And he says, God, they are not understanding, but you do. Now we travel back five Psalms to Psalm 54. Our first, uh, the, the, the first Psalm under consideration was, was 59, the second Psalm, 54. Here we find David writing about the people that are found in the city of Ziph when they rec reported Saul, uh, David's location to Saul. This actually happens twice in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel 23, the Ziphites report David to Saul. And in 1 Samuel 26, again, they report when David is in the area, the wilderness of Ziph, they report him to Saul. And as David considers the character of these men, the kind of men who, knowing that David is innocent, and knowing that Saul is, is, is doing wrong, would still report David's whereabouts to Saul. And, and David's contemplating this kind of person in Psalm 54. This one's much shorter. Please follow along with me. You can see it on the screen or in your Bibles. To the chief musician on Neganoth, Maskil, a Psalm of David, when the Ziphims came and said to Saul, doth not David hide himself with us? Save me, O God, by thy name and judge me by thy strength. Hear my prayer, O God, give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers are risen up against me, and oppressors seek after my soul. They have not set God before them. Selah. Behold, God is mine helper. The Lord is with them that uphold my soul. He shall reward evil unto mine enemies. Cut them off in thy truth. I will freely sacrifice unto thee. I will praise thy name, O Lord, for it is good. For he hath delivered me out of all trouble, and mine eyes hath seen his desire upon mine enemies." Now, Psalm 54 was said to be on Neganoth. Neganoth was a stringed instrument upon which it was designed to be sung. So here we have different tunes and different instruments, and David is effectively designating, this is what I want this played on. A maskil, remember in, in, in the 
the um, former psalm, Psalm 59, it was a mictum. This is a maskil. And a maskil is a, is a psalm that was intended to instruct. It's a psalm that's given for instructive purposes. Instead of just to sing, it's to teach. Well, we sang a couple of those this morning, right? We sang Trust and Obey. Trust and Obey is a teaching song. That, that song will preach. It'll tell you something about our relationship to God. So we have these sorts of ones as well. We would call that, if it were a psalm, we'd call it a, a maskil. The psalm is divided into two parts, indicated again with that sila that we find there right in the middle. We find it after verse 3. The first half is David making his complaint. The second half, David is extolling and declaring God's goodness and, and his confidence in God in the midst of his complaint. And David speaks in these two psalms concerning those who were carrying out the wishes of an unjust king against him for transgressions which he had not committed. Whether it's the Ziphites or whether it's Saul's henchmen, these are men who are carrying out the unjust edicts of an unjust king. Without provocation, while in right conscience before God, these men sought to destroy David. It was about two months ago, on December 13th of last year, that we preached a message in the context of the Ziphites, and we warned specifically against taking vengeance. It was actually within this context that we we gave that warning. In that message, we established that vengeance is not our privilege. Vengeance is God's privilege. And we consulted various passages of Scripture from both Old and New Testament, which strongly established this doctrine that we do not have the right to avenge ourselves on those that mistreat us. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 that we should not resist evil. Paul said in Romans chapter 12 that we should not avenge ourselves. He would say again in 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians, and remember when we preached through that in the evening service a little while back, this was a church that was being extremely persecuted unto martyrdom for their faith. And Paul would say to that church, see that none render evil for evil. And we spoke at that time as well about various types of vengeance. Physical vengeance, unforgiveness as a type of vengeance, unholy validation as a type of vengeance, and vindictive spite. And you say, Pastor, I don't know what you mean by those. Feel free to go back and listen to the message December 13th um, from 1 Samuel about the Ziphites. You can listen to it online, and, and we are on YouTube now. Huh. haven't really made a formal announcement, but the church is on YouTube if you if you're, uh, really want to see this face with the, with the voice on any time where, where you want to hear my messages again. But what happens? What happens in your, uh, to the, when people in your life, excuse me, use their position of authority or go along with authorities to hurt you without cause? What happens when wicked people in wickedness, punish you when you are standing in righteousness. David prays against the Ziphites, but only as they acted in relation to Saul's manhunt. David prays against Saul's henchmen, who laid in wait to fulfill Saul's command to have him destroyed. Our message from 1 Samuel 26 gave us the context of knowing what was wrong about vengeance. We exhorted that we should take these concerns to the Lord and allow the Lord to be our avenger. And we'll see that a little bit today in David's psalm as well as he, as he gives his confidence that God will avenge him of, of these evils. But what we have here are examples. Uh, more fleshed out examples of how exactly to do that. 
how to leave it with the Lord and, and what the result of that will be in our lives if we're willing to take what, what the world would say would be our right to vengeance, which we know we don't have, and leave vengeance with the one who does have that right, who is the Lord. What we have read today is two psalms which give us an example of how to handle this temptation to avenge ourselves. David has been there himself on many occasions, and he's a great example to us in this regard. And so I'm going to give you five points, five thoughts this morning as related to these two psalms, and we'll try to draw these two psalms together and see where they intermingle as it pertains to vengeance and our cries unto the Lord. The first thing we mention in regard to these two psalms is that they both take place within the context of innocence. The temptation to avenge ourselves is always felt when we perceive that we have been wronged or when we perceive that we have been mistreated. But sometimes we're actually not being mistreated. We're more or less just receiving what we deserve, not being truly wronged. The, the perception that a man has a right to be avenged presupposes the idea that we are being treated wrongly. Vengeance presupposes innocence. In other words, innocence is kind of the foundation upon which vengeance builds. Let me give you an example. The best example I can give you, uh, as, as I think of it, is the men and the women that I speak to when I go to the jail every week. As I talk with these inmates, many of them are dealing with the, the resentment that comes from unforgiveness and the desire for vengeance. They perceive that others have wronged them and they are angry at the people who have wronged them and they want to get back at the people who have wronged them. They, they want revenge against the person who called the police on them. They want revenge perhaps against the police who arrested them. They want revenge against the judge who sentenced them. But in these cases, as I deal with these people, the problem is that often as they present these scenarios... The vengeance, the, 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 what they are receiving, what they received, the fact that someone called the police on them, the fact that the police arrested them, it's entirely warranted. They have no right to be upset because they brought this upon themselves. They are simply receiving the consequence of their poor decisions, the consequence of their poor actions. And, and there's no basis for vengeance, right? There's no basis for, for, for vengeance if there is not innocence. Vengeance presupposes that we are innocent. The person that's in jail rightly for what they have done has not been wronged by having a person call the police on them. They were doing wrong and they're now being punished for the wrong. They have, not, they have no right to feel slighted because they deserved what they're receiving. They did the wrong and now they're suffering the consequences of their wrong. But as David writes, and as we consider how to leave vengeance in God's hands, we must understand that, that God avenges the innocent. That we have no right to even feel that we've been wronged if, if we deserve it, if we've brought it upon ourselves. But then when we are innocent, these are the times where we exhort ourselves with the reality that God is the one that avenges. In 1 Peter 2.20, Peter says this, for what glory is it if, when we be buffeted for your faults, ye take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. There is no glory before God. There is no comfort of vindication when we are simply suffering the consequences of our poor choices. 
there's no wrong done against us by those who call us out on our wrongs or by those authorities who punish us for our wrongdoing. You can't rightly, righteously be angry at your parents when they spank you for doing something they said they'll spank you for if you do. Because you did what they said you shouldn't do and they have authority over you. The time where you can feel as though you have been wronged is if your parents said you may do that and you do it and they spank you for it, then there's something unjust happening there. That's the context. If I get caught stealing from my employer and I get fired, I have no right to complain about being fired because I was doing wrong. I have no right to, to feel as though I was treated unfairly because I was, I was in the wrong. I got fired for doing wrong. But if I catch someone else stealing and I tell my boss that someone else was stealing, I report it and the guy stealing happened to be the boss's cousin and so I get fired so the boss's cousin doesn't have to get in trouble for stealing, well then I've suffered loss for doing right. I have been wronged. I have been treated unjustly. And in, in those are the cases that we're speaking of today. This is the context within which David is speaking. I'm not preaching telling you that if you've done something legitimately wrong and you're offended because somebody called you on it, that God's going to avenge you. Because that's not the case. Don't, don't think that God is going to avenge you when you have legitimately done wrong and you're receiving the consequences of that. There's no glory, 1 Peter 2.20 says, if when you do wrong, you suffer for it. There's no glory in that before the Lord. But if when you do well... If when you do right and you still suffer for it, that, that's acceptable to God. That's where God will vindicate. That's where, that's where we need to, to do what David's doing here. That's where we need to place our concerns in God's hand and let him become the judge. And that's what 1 Peter 2.20 tells us. In the context of innocence, when I am wronged but I take it patiently, I commend the wrong to God, I seek no vengeance upon myself, God is pleased. So the context of innocence. In, in Psalm 59, we see David say it this way. He says, For lo, they lie in wait for my soul, verses 3 and 4. The mighty are gathered against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves without my fault. Awake to help me and behold. So David is saying, Lord, I know that I'm innocent. I've searched my heart. I've done nothing wrong. And they're lying in wait for me. And he's appealing to the Lord on the basis of his innocence. Saul's men were lying in wait for him, not because of his own sin, but literally because of Saul's wickedness. In Psalm 54, we see this reflected in verse 1. David says, Save me, O God, by thy name, and judge me by thy strength. David is literally looking at God and saying, God, I'm appealing to you to judge me. And a man doesn't appeal to the Lord to judge him if he's, if he's innocent, right? If, he's, if, he's, um, if, he, if he truly believes and fears the Lord, he will not appeal to God to judge if he is not innocent. This innocence is what gives David the confidence to call upon God for vindication. Now there's one more thing that needs to be established about the context of innocence before we move on. Remember as we closed out 1 Samuel, we mentioned on several occasions that man's capacity to self-deception is very great. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Proverbs 28.26 tells us, He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool, but whoso walketh wisely, he shall be delivered. 
When we face situations where we're being rebuked or punished or wrongly judged, it is our immediate temptation to find all the ways that the person rebuking us is wrong, right? That, that's, that's the inherent thing. We get defensive and we immediately seek for all the ways that we were wronged in, in maybe the manner that they, they, they brought it up or, or in the content of the rebuke or how dare you, like we talked about this morning in Sunday school, how dare you say anything to me when, when I know you do this too or, or whatever the case may be or you're not perfect and here you are calling me out. But we must be very careful here. Humans have the propensity to give themselves the benefit of the doubt, to justify our poor actions, and justification which we would never rationally extend to anyone other than ourselves. In other words, when we come before the Lord and we, are, we have been wronged or we perceive we've been wronged, the first thing you need to do is truly see if you're coming to God in the context of innocence. Humble yourself before the Lord and say, God, is there a part of me that is wrong here? Did I do something wrong here? You need to start there with yourself. In an often subconscious attempt to draw our own attention away from our guilt, we focus on various other aspects, various other problems, the manner of the rebuke, or we seek to compare ourselves to the faults of others. To illustrate this point, I use an example which I've I've used on many other occasions. You're driving in the car, and someone cuts you off, right? And immediately, as we talked about in Sunday school again this morning, as Jenny brought up this morning, you, you assume that they had evil intentions, right? That they cut you off because they're a terrible driver, because they hate you, because they hate everybody, because they're, they're, they're a terrible person, they're, they're evil, they've always been evil. No doubt that they were the kind of people who, when they were kids, they used to go and pop heads off of grasshoppers and all sorts of terrible things, right? Because they were the kind of person who would dare cut you off. But then you're driving, and you're in the turn lane, and you didn't mean to be in the turn lane, and you don't want to be on the turn lane, and you have to jump out of that lane really quickly, and you put your hand up in the air, and, oh, I'm sorry, and you would hope that they would understand that you were put into a circumstance that you didn't want to be put in, and that you you didn't wake up in the morning thinking, who can I cut off today? But that there was a circumstance, there was a circumstance that put you in an unfortunate place. Now, you would hope that they would give you the benefit of that doubt. But you're very rarely tempted to give anybody else the benefit of that doubt, right? And that's the nature of, of human, the human heart. It's, it's deceptive by its nature. This is why when you talk to someone and they, 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 you're giving them the gospel and they say something to the effect of, well, I hope my good will outweigh my bad or I hope that I'll get there on the good, good things that I've done. To we who are in Christ, that, that's a preposterous claim. Because we know that our good can never outweigh our bad. And we know that even if our good could outweigh our bad, if any man offend in one point, he's guilty of all. That we've already dug ourselves into a hole that we can never get out of as far as sin is concerned. That there's no way we can righteously account for our unrighteousness. But to the human heart, to the human heart that gives himself or herself the benefit of the doubt... If you were to, when, when you talk to someone and you say, hey, when you stand before God and they, he says, why should I let you into heaven? What will you tell them? There's immediately a thousand justifications as to why they should get into heaven. This is human nature. Human nature is predisposed to assuming the best of itself. Even when it doesn't really deserve it. 
And so that's where we've got to start. We have to start when we are feeling wronged and we're going to bring that to the Lord. We have to be sure that we are truly beginning from the context of innocence. That as you've searched the standard by which God judges the hearts of men, which is the word of God, as you have prayed and asked the Lord through his Holy Spirit to illuminate the word of God to you and to convict your heart of sin, that you know that you are standing before God in innocence. Because that is the context within which God avenges, the, avenges others. It's the context of the just. And so David knows his innocence here. He knows he's right. It doesn't mean he's sinless. But it means that as far as the thing to which these men are attacking him for, he is innocent. Only within this context does everything else that we're going to say apply properly. This message is not intended to comfort the guilty. It's intended... To comfort the innocent with expectation of hope. So, the context of innocence. Second, we see David give a complaint against the wicked. In Psalm 54, 3, he says, For strangers are risen up against me, and oppressors seek after my soul. They have not set God before them. Selah. In Psalm 59, verses 6 and 7, he says, They return at evening. They make a noise like a dog. They go round about the city. They, behold, they belch out with their mouths, swords are in their lips, for who say they doth hear? They're proud, they're haughty, they're, they're rejoicing in, in the unrighteous deed that they've been given. It's important to understand that in both of David's psalms here, each of which is a prayer to God, he does not deny the evil that men are doing. Sometimes as Christians, we're, we're tempted to think that if we acknowledge the evil that's being done to us, that we've already fallen into a spirit of vindictiveness, or we've already fallen into unrighteous anger, or we've already fallen into sinful judgmentalism. As if God calls upon his followers not just to be um, loving people, but willfully ignorant people. As if we have to walk through life with blinders over our eyes that just assumes that everybody is a good person, and, and, and even when they're hurting me, I'm just going to smile and, and say, hey, thank you, and... and, and Sometimes we can kind of get that feeling from the way Christians talk about turning the other cheek and all of these concepts. Like we as God's followers are supposed to pretend that sin doesn't exist or that people aren't hurting us or that people aren't, aren't being unkind to us in the name of charity. But there's a huge difference between acknowledging a wrong and vindicating a wrong. We can live in reality. We can acknowledge when a person has wronged us. We can acknowledge when a person has hurt us. We can acknowledge that to our own hearts. David does all the time. He prays and he says, God, this person has done wrong. God, this person has hurt me. We don't have to pretend as though it didn't happen. We don't have to pretend as though things don't hurt. The human heart can't handle that. It's, it's living a lie. David didn't pretend as though he wasn't being hurt by these people. David didn't pretend as though they weren't hurting him. God doesn't ask his followers to pretend like offenses don't exist, only to operate above those offenses. He doesn't ask his followers to ignore mistreatment, but only to yield our right to act against mistreatment. May I say those again? God doesn't ever ask his followers to pretend like offenses don't exist only to operate above those offenses. God doesn't ever ask his followers to ignore mistreatment, only to yield our right to act against mistreatment or to avenge ourselves of mistreatment. We as believers need not feel guilty when we acknowledge someone has wronged us, 
we should not deem it wrong to call sin what it, what it is. And as we consider the example of David, David did not hesitate under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to acknowledge unto God the wrongs that had been done against him, that he was right and they were wrong, and the wickedness of men who have made themselves David's enemies. It's not unbiblical to acknowledge wrongs, but the question becomes, what do we do with the wrongs that we have acknowledged? What do we do with the wrongs when we've acknowledged them? So we see a a context of innocence. We see a complaint against the wicked. Third, a determination to trust. A determination to trust. A spiritual problem does not necessarily arise in us when we acknowledge that people have wronged us. So when does it become a problem? What what do we need to guard ourselves against? Well, we spoke already in summary the reality that we have no right to vindicate ourselves in regard to wrongs against us. And this this is where we get into sin territory. When we take it upon ourselves to avenge ourselves of the wrongs that have been done. We can acknowledge that they were wrong, but when we seek to avenge ourselves, now we're getting into territory that God does not want us to get into. It's not part of God's economy that he has given to man to avenge ourselves of wrongs done against us. And in order to align ourselves with God in this matter, we must trust God. And we must trust him in many ways. David said in Psalm 59, verses 8 through 10, as we, we're considering the Psalms here, he said, But thou, O Lord, shalt laugh at them. Thou shalt have all the heathen in derision. Because of his strength will I wait upon thee. For God is my defense. The God of my mercy shall prevent me. God shall let me see my desire upon mine enemies. The word prevent there, when David says, The God of my mercy shall prevent me. It doesn't mean what we have often taken it to mean today in the English language. It's what it means today. To, to prevent in the English language means to keep something from happening, right? I'm going to prevent you from fill in the blank. It means I'm going to keep you from doing it. But in our King James, uh, in, in 1611 English, the word prevent means to go before or to prepare the way. So he's saying here that the Lord will go before me. He will prepare the way for me. David trusts that God sees the wicked and it's evil and is laughing at their pride to think that they will avoid God's judgment, to think that they can do that to someone and get away with it. David says God's just laughing. He's laughing at you for being so foolish as to think that you can do this wickedness without God's judgment. David trusts that God will divinely defend him as he chooses to not defend himself. David trusts that God's mercy has gone before him and paved the way of his path, has paved a way to justice for him already. That the moment somebody has wronged you, if you defer that wrong, that God has already gone before you and he's paved the path to vindication. Maybe not in this life, maybe not until the life to come, but that God will be just. In Psalm 54, 4 and 5, David says this, Behold, God is mine helper. The Lord is with them that uphold my soul. He shall reward evil upon, uh, unto mine enemies. Cut them off in thy truth. David considers the Ziphites here, right? Psalm 54. Their terrible action against him. He remembers that God will uphold him even in the midst of false accusation and unjust action. David trusts that God is able to vindicate. And so too must we. When we face the evils of false accusation, unjust intention, things that have been done against us wrongly, 
we must trust that God knows our hearts and our innocence before Him. We must trust that God knows the hearts of others, maybe their ignorance, maybe their intentional wickedness. We must trust that God is in control, that God could turn the heart of our adversary if He so choose. We must trust God's word that as we do things His way, we will find divine favor within His economy. And this has many implications, doesn't it? We know that the scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians not to go to law against a brother or sister in Christ. That we should not take them before the, the, the unbelieving legal system. But how often today do you read about that? Do you read about believers going to law against churches and so people believing, claiming to be believers going, going to law against churches. And of course, we, we can't know their hearts. But seeking to vindicate what they perceive to be wrongs through the legal system. Bringing vindication, doing it their own way. And yet David, when they were seeking his life, did it the right way. I'm not going to seek to vindicate myself. I am going to leave the vindication for my righteous actions before the Lord. We can trust that God is our helper when others have turned against us. We can trust that God is transcendent even when those who reject God seem to prosper. And this is the trust that David is careful to remind himself of as he continues through these two psalms, not to vindicate himself, but to leave himself in the hands of the great judge. Notice what David then says as we consider our fourth point here, the reminder of vindication in Psalm 54, 5. He says, He shall reward evil unto mine enemies. Cut them off in thy truth. And again in Psalm 59, 12 and 13, David says, For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride. And for cursing and lying which they speak, consume them in wrath, consume them that they may not be, and let them know that God ruleth in Jacob unto the ends of the earth. As I mentioned already, I preached a sermon only about two months ago that focused upon God's right to vindicate and our responsibility to yield that right. But there's one element of vindication that often comes up in the hearts of, well, of the well-intentioned that I would like us to remind ourselves of again this morning, just because I, I don't know that I can bring this up enough, because it's something we all uh, struggle with. When we yield our right to be vindicated, and we forgive those who wronged us, it leaves us in a natural state of conflict about what to do with those wrongs. We're willing to forgive, but that doesn't always mean we forget, does it? We're willing to excuse wrongs done against us, but what happens when we are called upon to continue a relationship with that person who has wronged us? David is going to be wronged by, he has been wronged by two groups here, by the Ziphites and by, by Saul's henchmen. And more specifically, as we, we bubble it up to the top, David's being deeply wronged by Saul, isn't he? But you know what we're going to learn about tonight in, in 2 Samuel chapter 1? David's going to sing a psalm of lamentation for Saul after his death. And it's going to be a beautiful song of honor and kindness and love extended towards Saul. After Saul's death, David seeks out Jonathan's sons to honor him, named Mephibosheth. 
to honor him. He practically makes him a part of David's family. And we never see David do a campaign against the people of Ziph, do we? Read, read 2 Samuel, read 1 and 2 Kings, read 1 and 2 Chronicles. You never see David wage a war against the Ziphites because he remembered what they did to him on those two occasions. You never see that. As we consider God's example of forgiveness, he says this in Isaiah 43, 25, and in Isaiah, uh, excuse me, Jeremiah. Isaiah 43, 25, and Jeremiah 31, 34. Got a little ahead of myself there. God tells Israel in both of those contexts, I will remember your sin no more. The psalmist would say in Psalm 103.12, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. The example of God on our behalf, from the God of the Old Testament, who was a loving and forgiving God, to when he manifested himself through Jesus Christ and died on the cross to forgive us of our sin, the, the example of God on our behalf on the basis of the forgiveness which is purchased for us in Christ, is that God has willfully put away our sin from before His face. That when God forgives a man, it's not inherently that, that the mind of God is incapable of recalling those offenses against Him. But that He is purposefully removing the offense from any consideration of His dealings with you. That's the idea, that he has removed our sin from us, that he will remember our sin no more. He is choosing to take the sin and to put it away from his face. He is choosing to take the sin and to not factor the sin or the offense against him into any consideration as he deals with us. And this is what it means to forgive. This is the essence of forgiveness. Far too often we as Christians take on the world's concept of forgiveness. Forgiveness as if it's some sort of favor that we're doing to the offender. That we have any right to withhold from the offender forgiveness. Or that forgiveness somehow positions us to expect recompense for wrongs done against us. We treat forgiveness like it's something that is to be earned or something that is to be deserved. That I won't forgive that person until they show themselves worthy or until they come and they ask me for it or until I see the fruit of repentance. Uh, I will hold that offense over their head until such time as I feel like they've, they've paid enough for what they've done to me. That's, that's, that's vengeance, isn't it? That's a form of vengeance. That if I won't forgive somebody until they've done enough to prove to me something, that I am holding over their heads unforgiveness until such time as they're willing to, 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 to get something right or to do enough right things. We don't see that as an example of, from Jesus Christ. This is not the example of God in forgiveness. Forgiveness as God presents us has nothing to do with, with whether or not we deserve it or we ask for it or we've earned it has everything to do with whether or not we... Has, we receiving the forgiveness has everything to do with, with what God has extended through Christ. Has nothing to do with personal advantage and everything to do with a firm conviction that God is the only one who has the right to vindicate. Has nothing to do with worthiness and everything to do with love. Ephesians 4.32 says, And be ye kind one to another... Tender-hearted, forgiving one another. How? Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And I think we talked about this a couple of months ago. If God extended His forgiveness to you in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ, 
when you were an enemy of his, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, when you didn't want what he had to offer, then how dare we withhold forgiveness from anyone? If God extended his love toward us and his forgiveness to us to the extent that he sent his son to die on the cross, then what kind of pride does it take for us to say, I am not going to forgive someone else? What right do I have to not forgive when to me has been extended forgiveness from everything that I have done against a holy God, much less simply what someone has done against me? How dare I condition my forgiveness upon the actions of others? Or how dare I bring up offenses again after I've claimed to forgive someone? Someone comes up and says, this is a big thing among husbands and wives. Husband comes up and says, hey honey, will you forgive me? She says, yeah, I forgive you. Three weeks later, husband does something wrong and she says, it's just like that time and when you did that to me. Wait a minute, I thought you'd forgiven him. If you have forgiven him, then you have no right to bring that up. Forgiveness is a release. You've released it. If you're bringing it back up again, then clearly something hasn't been released. Forgiveness is not treating that person within the context of their wrongs. That's when you have forgiven someone. When you can treat them the way God would have you to treat them outside of the context of the way that they've wronged you. Or wrong those that you've loved. Forgiveness doesn't mean we're incapable of recalling the offense to our memory. But that when we forgive, we are choosing not to factor the offense into the way that we act or react toward that person. Now, that doesn't mean we bury our heads in the sand and let them do the thing to us again and again, right? We can put up protections. But we don't factor their wrongs into our relationship with them. Forgiveness means we treat the offender apart from his offense. Not... That we pretend he hasn't hurt us. David did not treat Saul and his men according to their unkindness toward him. When David became king, he did not avenge himself against the Ziphites or against Saul's household. It's not that his mind could not recall these offenses. He wrote songs about them, right? I mean, it's not that he was trying to, to, to put them out of his mind. He literally, under the inspiration of the Holy Scripture, penned indelible songs about Saul's offenses. But he didn't vindicate himself. And that's forgiveness. David would write in Psalm 103 verse 10, just before that phrase where he says that as far as the east is from the west, so far as God removed our, our iniquity, our transgressions from us, he says this in Psalm 103 10, God, he hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Isn't that beautiful? God has not dealt with us according to our sins. He has not rewarded us according to our iniquities. We have found mercy with him. Can we not extend the same? Forgiveness is not arbitrary, however. It rests upon the foundation of God's justice. And we see this in the psalm as well. The vindication. This is the vindication. God will vindicate us, and that's why we don't need to vindicate ourselves. God's justice will not be frustrated, and therefore we can rest our circumstances in his hands. David forgives in the confidence that the wicked will still be punished. That if this man spends the rest of his days unrepentant before the Lord, that God will one day hold him accountable. And because David knows God will hold 
him accountable, Saul, these henchmen, the Ziphites, David can take it off of his shoulders. He doesn't have to carry around that burden of vengeance and of anger. He can lift it off and place it at the Lord's feet and say, God, because you're going to deal with it, I can live free from that. And that is how we live free from resentment, unforgiveness, and the anger that it builds up. Because we don't have to carry that on our shoulders. God will carry that burden. Let God deal with it. Don't try to carry it yourself. A context of innocence, a complaint against the wicked, a determination to trust, a reminder of vindication, and finally, fifth, David concludes both of these psalms with praise. As we practice this perspective in the midst of our troubles, false accusations, mistreatment, as we practice this perspective of allowing the Lord to do the vengeance, something happens. It leads us to an inevitable place. And it's the exact place God wants us to be. The anger and the vindictiveness and the, and the frustrations and the resentment are lifted off of us. And God replaces it with praise. By intentionally doing things God way, God's way as opposed to my own way, I'm already justifying God's wisdom and God's word. Obedience to God is, by its very nature, an exercise in humility. It's only natural then that as I do it God's way, it will lead me to praise Him. Psalm 54, 6 and 7, David says, I will freely sacrifice unto thee. I will praise thy name, O Lord, for it is good, for he hath delivered me out of all trouble. And mine eye hath seen his desire upon mine enemies. And again in Psalm 59, the last two verses, 16 and 17. But I will sing of thy power. Yea, I will sing aloud of thy mercy in the morning. For thou hast been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. Unto thee, O my strength, will I sing. For God is my defense and the God of my mercy. To trust God's justice and power is to believe God's justice and power and to invest in God's justice and power. And to fully invest in God's way will without fail lead me to a place of praise. What else can a man do when God has removed from him the obligation, the weight, the burden of vindicating himself? When that weight is lifted off of his shoulders, what can, God, what, what, what can a man do but praise the Lord? What else can a man do when the weight of other people's wickedness is removed from his shoulders? But sigh in relief and praise the one who's removed the burden. We praise God that He is just. We praise God that He is faithful. We praise God as well that He is merciful. That He has shown us great mercy and that we have the privilege of extending that mercy to others. That those who treat us unjustly will, will however, still answer to God for that injustice. In the day when God judges the hearts, the motives, and the intentions of men. Things which I cannot judge. We praise God that we don't suffer that burden of avenging ourselves. And we praise God even for His design. Even that He allows us to be afflicted. For in our affliction, we have the privilege of relying upon Him in a more real way. Relying upon Him for our vindication, but also being reminded that God has forgiven us and that we should show such great mercy and kindness to others. What value is there in the lessons of Psalm 54 and 59 when seen through the circumstances that David was facing? Well, incredible value. 
how well these psalms emphasize the dynamics of trust in God's way above our own way. It has seemed like every instance of the life of David in 1 Samuel points us to one theme, so much so that we might rightly claim that it's one of the primary themes of the book of 1 Samuel, that every man must choose to trust his own way or God's way. His way or God's way. And while on paper this choice is easy, God's way, right? Of course. When you are the one being falsely accused, when you are the one being mistreated, when you are the one that's been fired for doing right, when you're the one that is being persecuted for righteousness sake, when you are the one whose rights or perceived rights are being trampled upon, when your enemies are seeking to destroy you, in these times, will you still agree that God's way is better than your way? When you are metaphorically fleeing for your life, or perhaps literally fleeing for your life, the day is probably coming. When you're fleeing for your life from those who lie in wait to destroy you, when you have those who, who ought to know better reporting you, is that when you will take the wheel from God and insist that it's time for your understanding to guide you into success? Or will you maintain God's way in that time? Determined to trust and praise God still. There are perhaps men and women in this room who are in difficult places this morning. You've done right. You are innocent. And perhaps no one knows it but you and God. You've been wronged by others, you've been falsely accused, you've been forsaken, you've been put out. Can you trust God that He knows? Can you trust God that He can recompense men better than you can? Will you determine that you will praise God in the midst of such treatment, justifying the way of the Lord in the midst of even man's abuse? It starts with a context of innocence. You need to make sure you're truly innocent first. But if you will do so, if you will trust God, if you will do it God's way, you will find, as David did, this place of praise, this place of peace. That doesn't mean the wrongs will go away. That doesn't mean the people will go away. But it does mean that you will transcend the circumstances that are about you, which is the whole concept of joy. Joy is that hope and that determination above transcending above circumstances to praise the Lord. And as we transcend these circumstances which surround us, it will be to God's glory and also to our spiritual benefit. Let's pray.